0: A little over seven years ago, um, about ten guys, friends from my friends and some from this church, some men from this church, threw me my uh, bachelor party um, uh, for my before I got married to my wife, Shireen. Uh These ten guys, I think ten or twelve guys, took me white water rafting down the Kern River. So we went on, I believe, a Friday. We camped overnight and an all day rafting trip on Saturday. Well, next day, we're all pumped up, you know, I don't know if you've seen that commercial, these guys, they're in Class 5 Rapids, and they're in a Toyota 4Runner, and they're all excited and pumped up, and they see the white water, and they uh, wimp out and go Class 3. Well, that was kind of us, you know, that morning we woke up, we were all pumped, ready to go, uh, it was the first time for all of us, and we had our gear, we met our guide, we got the raft, and we were set to launch off by the river. I'm just thinking to myself, I'm ready to go. Let's get the show on the road. Well, right by the riverbed, our guide stops us and she gives me what seemed like the longest lecture ever in the history of river rafting. She goes on and on about rowing procedure, navigating around rocks, you know, navigating around white water, safety issues, and on and on and on, you know, how to row. And if we're ever thrown off, then how, you know, what we are to do, how we are to flow down the river to protect our heads. We need to go feed first. And if we're far away from the boat, they'll throw us a lifeline and how we are to hold it so we don't drink water. And I'm just not really listening. I'm like, come on, let's go. Let's get the show on the road. You know, I've been to Magic Mountain. I've rode, ridden uh, Roaring Rapids many times, you know. <laughs> What's the big deal? Let's get going. So finally... Enough of the details, we get, we get going. The water level was very high. I think it was like El Nino year, so the water level was very high. It's a great day of rafting. If you've never gone, I highly recommend it. It was just pure joy. Well, the last leg of the day, you know, we're off, the last time we're going through, we're going to the highest class rapid, and we're all getting pumped. Even the guy looked a little nervous, he was instructing us. And right before we hit the white water, what happens? Three of us fall on the water. So, what do they do? Do they go after the guy who's going to get married within a few weeks? No, they don't do that, right? They go after the other guys, and I'm just floating down the river in the white water, drinking water. And all that time, I'm thinking to myself, what did she say? <laughs> Man, how am I supposed to go down the white water? And of course, I went down you know, head first because I wasn't listening. And then afterwards, they threw me the lifeline. I'm thinking, wow, how was I supposed to hold this? (laughs) You're supposed to hold it like behind your back so that when they pull you, you don't drink water. But what do I do? Hold it like this. (laughs) Water to my face. I drink water. Well, I didn't think, you know, these instructions were very important. I didn't really care for the details. And I was very humbled. If you ever go whitewater rafting, I recommend going. And listen to the instructor before you go in. Uh, and I paid the price. You know, I needed them. Well, does this describe your heart this morning? Am I kind of exposing what is in your heart? Are you saying to yourself, Pastor James, another sermon on the Holy Spirit? Like, enough already, I you know? I mean, the person we went last week, personhood of the Holy Spirit and nature the permanent the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, we covered all that. And now we're going to cover baptism with the Holy Spirit and all these nuances and all these details? Come on, Pastor James, don't we have the Holy Spirit? We know that much. Let's jump right in with both feet. Why get mired in the details? Well, these details initially might seem irrelevant and impractical. They might just seem just high theology and mired in the details of Scripture. But I'll tell you, um, the Christian life is a long, long race. And you will hit those whitewater rapids yourself. Whether in life, family, your personal walk. In terms of ministry, you're going to get thrown off the boat. And I don't want you to... Think to yourself, Wow, what did Pastor James teach about the Holy Spirit that one Sunday? What was he saying? Because I wasn't listening. You know, trust me. Trust the Bible. You need these truths for your life, for your Christian life. See, Christ is gone. You know, He will come back, but you you know Christ has left us. He's not on earth anymore. He has left us, but not as orphans. He has left us under the care of the paraclete, under the care of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He is our superintendent. He is our principal. He is our parent, if you will, caring for us while Christ is gone. So therefore, as Christians, it is, it is crucial, it is critical that we understand who the Holy Spirit is and how He ministers to us until the return of Christ. So, We're going to pause here in John 14 for several weeks. Hopefully, we'll finish just studying the Holy Spirit before our next baby is born, in a few weeks. I can't time that, so it's not up to me. But we'll spend at least three, four weeks on just studying the Holy Spirit. Today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll look at being filled with the Holy Spirit, importance of spiritual disciplines. We'll also consider the spiritual gifts, even, that very difficult, involved, complex study we will tackle in the near future. But for now, today, we're going to start by studying the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spirit baptism. And to rightly understand this, and stay with me, folks, we need to go all the way to the Old Testament, all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Uh, In Exodus 19, it's a pivotal time in the history of Israel where God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, a contract. Um, It's a bilateral contract. Think of it as like signing a contract with Verizon or Singular or AT&T. They tell you, we'll give you coverage. We'll have your phone work. But your responsibility is to Pay the bill. Now, you have 300 minutes per month. You go over, it's going to cost you $2 a minute. I don't know, 25 cents a minute. It's going to cost you. So you have these parameters, and you have obligations and responsibilities and privileges. Likewise, as a company, we have obligations, privileges, and responsibilities. It's a bilateral contract. Well, God bound Himself to this kind of contract with the nation of Israel. Verse 5, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, keep my law, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. You'll be special to me. Although the whole earth is mine, I will be unique to you in the sense that I will be the God of Israel. And you will be my people. Verse 6, You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, Israelites, Moses, representing them, and Aaron, all the Israelites, said, this is great. What a contract. The God of Israel is going to be our God and fight for us and lead us and guide us and bless us. That's great. So down in verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord said. Moses said, are you sure? People said, yeah, we'll do all of that. So Moses took that news to God, to Yahweh, and said, we agree to this contract. The Old Covenant was presented and ratified. It was a good contract. It was fair. All the contingencies, all the obligations were clearly laid out. There was no fine print. It was bold letters, you know, in, a, in block, two blocks, two tablets, for all to see. It said that the Lord will bless His people if they obey the law. But if they disobeyed, there would be, you know, ETF, right? What's ETF? Early termination fee, right? <laughs> so, if you break this contract, there's going to be a, you have to pay a price. and The price is being cursed, being punished. It is called the Old Covenant, it is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, because it was made in, near this mountain Sinai. The sign of the covenant was the Sabbath. We won't, we won't read these verses, but Exodus 31, 13 through 14, there was always a sign that accompanied a covenant. Um, the Abrahamic covenant, was circumcision, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, at the contract, the paper. For the Mosaic covenant, the sign was the Sabbath. Every seventh day, or the first day of the week actually, you will set apart yourself and not work and worship Yahweh. That's why Christians, we don't worship on Saturday, because that's the Mosaic covenant made to Israel. We're not Israel. That's beside the point. Well, suffice to say, God was very faithful to his part of the contract. I mean, he was abundantly faithful to his side. But Israel, as we all know, like next generation failed. I mean, they, they failed too. But you know, God told them, this is a covenant I make with you and your uh, generations to come pass it down and teach it to your children. or well, the very next generation forgot these covenants and they rebelled against the Lord. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 11 and verses 7 through 11. And here Jeremiah as a mouthpiece of God. He is bemoaning the fact, he is grieving and sorrowful that any nation would back out from a covenant that God had made with them. Jeremiah 11, 7-11, God says, From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey Me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil heart. So I brought in them all the curses of the covenant I commanded them to follow, but that they did not keep. The Lord said, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused, to, who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They have broken the commandment, the covenant, excuse me, I made with their forefathers. Therefore, I will bring on them a disaster. They cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Go to chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. God will so ravage the nation of Israel. God says, these Gentile pagan nations will come to Israel and they will see the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and they will say to each other, why has Yahweh done such a thing to this city? Why has the nation of Israel been so punished, so cursed and so judged? Why has this happened? Verse 9, the answer will be, Simply because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, their God, and have worshipped and served other gods. The old covenant was broken. The Mosaic covenant contract was ripped apart. And the weakness was not with God. It's not that God was powerless, or He was not able, or He did not fulfill His part of the bargain. No, He was faithful. The weakness, as Paul said in Romans, is in the heart of man. The law is perfect, but the weak link in the chain is, is our hearts, our sinfulness, our depravity, our rebelliousness. And because of that, the covenant, covenant could not be fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Therefore, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. Forget that old Mosaic Covenant. Throw it away. It's no good. I'm going to make a new covenant. And because I understand the depravity and the wickedness of the human heart, it'll be a unilateral covenant. I will do it all. Right? Free, you know, cell phone coverage. Free cell phone, free minutes, everything. I will do everything. Right? Because I can't trust you guys at all. This is what I will do. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. It is not like the covenant I made with their fathers when they came out of Egypt. Verse 33, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And this is the unique part of this covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Before the law was in a tablet of stone, this time, I'm going to write that law in your hearts. I will be their God they will be my people no longer will they need to teach one another know the Lord because they will all know God they will all know Yahweh from the least of them to the greatest I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more This covenant is spoken of again and listen to Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 Ezekiel says God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour out my spirit on my offspring. Joel 2, 28 and 29. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people Give you a new heart. Holy Spirit will not dwell on the holiest of holies in the temple of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will dwell in the hearts of people. God said, I will do it. Israel is just amazed. They're waiting. They're waiting for this consolation, this comfort of Israel. And they understood that when the Messiah comes, He will usher in the new covenant. He will bring the contract with Him. And He will give it to the nation of Israel. they're all waiting for the Messiah. That's what Simeon was doing in Luke chapter 2, right? He was waiting in the temple, and God had told them he will not die until he sees the Messiah, and he himself will see the consolation, the restoration of Israel to God the Father, and this new covenant established. So when he held baby Jesus in his hands, he was weeping, because he understood God's going to reside in the hearts of people because of Jesus Christ. That's what John the Baptist said in Mark 1.8. He said, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming after me, of whom I am not worthy to do, untie his shoelaces, he will baptize you with water and what? With the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He's the Messiah. And that's what Christ did. That's what Christ did. And Christ promised, promised the disciples in Luke 24.49, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. John 14. I've got, I promised you, and the Father promised you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come. So don't leave Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. In Acts one you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Promise of Christ. Well, that's exactly what happened, right? Acts chapter 2. The disciples were all gathered together in one place in the upper room and the door starts shaking, a rushing wind, glory like fire, light comes down from heaven and the Holy Spirit dwells on each disciple and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or you might say, great James, let's close in prayer and go on to snacks. That's a great message. Holy Spirit has come. I'm down with that. But, but all believers believe what I've just said. But there is great confusion and much debate on how and when this takes place in the life of a believer. We all agree the Holy Spirit has come, but there's a disagreement on when this happens and how it happens. There is just great differences, great debate and division concerning the how and the when. In your outline is a quote by John MacArthur. It's not in your outline, but I have John MacArthur here in my notes, so it is him. Um, The fact that the baptism by the Holy Spirit has to be the most confused, misrepresented, misunderstood doctrine among Christians today. It is a cause for continual controversy. New Unger's Bible Dictionary says, No subject in all the range of biblical theology. I mean, no, it says, no subject is so neglected, misunderstood, and abused as this. What is this? The doctrine, the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there are, I think, three or four views. We can narrow it down to two competing positions on how we are baptized with the Holy Spirit and when this happens. The first view is this, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an optional work of the Holy Spirit that comes after salvation. Two key words, optional and after. So it happens to only some believers, and it comes after you are saved. It's a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what R.A. Torius said, The baptism with the Spirit, it's in your outlines, is a work of the Holy Spirit distinct from and additional to His regenerating work. In other words, it is one thing to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It is quite another thing to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He goes on, Many miss the greater blessing of experiencing God because they believe that salvation is the baptism and what you get is all there is. End quote. Ralph M. Riggs says, Although all believers have the Holy Spirit, yet it still remains that all believers, in addition to having the Holy Spirit, may be filled with or baptized with the Holy Spirit. The disciples before Pentecost had received the Holy Spirit already, but they needed still to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. End quote. Listen to what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones You know, a godly man. I mean, just a biblicist, a man committed to Reformed theology. And he says, I am asserting that you can be a believer, that you can have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and still not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he hurts me here, right? You know, those people who say that, and that's me, have to says that baptism with the Holy Spirit happens to everybody at regeneration, at salvation, seems to me not only denying the New Testament, but to be definitely quenching the Holy Spirit. Oh, Martin, you know, you have to go there. Um, just godly men hold this position. Godly men. Um, Watchman Knee, John Piper. D.L. Moody. John Wesley. Charles Finney, among others. And the scriptural support they give are verses like Luke 24, 49. Christ said, wait, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Wait, weren't they already believers then? When Christ spoke to the disciples in Luke 24, they were Christians, they were believers. But then they received the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Therefore, there was an intervening time of 40 days. Therefore, the baptism of the Holy Spirit must be after salvation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And here is, a popular text that is used to support this view. In Acts 8, there was persecution that came upon Christians in Jerusalem, and so the disciples scattered throughout the region of Samaria and surrounding areas. And so Philip, Acts 8 verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria, and Samaritans, remember, were half-Jews. They were the Jews who were apostate. They had intermarried with the Canaanites, with non-Jews. And therefore, they had this this convoluted theology. They had just a mixture. It was a combo plate of Judaism and paganism, belief in Baal and Molech and just paganism. It was all mixed into one. And so Jews considered Samaritans, forgive me, but that's what they considered them as dogs, as dirty, as unclean, infidels. Just betrayers of, the, of 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 Yahweh. Therefore, the last thing they would do is associate with Samaritans, right? But some, but Philip, what does he do? He proclaims the gospel to the Samaritans. And verse twelve, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news, what did, what did Philip do? He baptized them. What is baptism? Water baptism, symbolizing that they are Christians. An outward form of inner reality. I'm going to baptize you because in your heart you believe you're saved. I will baptize you. Now, verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaritans received the word of God. So they said, is this true? Because they thought that they, right, they thought the new covenant was only for Israel and Judah. Right? What, what are the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit for? In Acts 10, the Gentiles What's going on here? And what happened? And this is a whole side point. Huh? I don't confuse you guys, but because Israel rejected the Messiah, the new covenant, though it began in Acts two, it's been delayed. It started in Acts two, but it's not been inaugurated. It hasn't started. It's you know like you know the election will go on in November, and we'll know who the president is. But he won't be affirmed to the office until January. It's a lame-duck period. I'm not saying it's a lame-duck period, but there is a delay of the New Covenant. And this period is called the Church Age, where Samaritans and Gentiles come into the church. And Ephesians 3, Paul says, this was a mystery. We had no idea. As we look back to the Old Testament, we see now that the Gentiles were included but we had no idea about this church age. But Paul said, don't worry, God's word has not failed to Israel. When there's a full number of Gentiles, including the church, it will incur jealousy among the Jews. And in a future time period, when Christ comes back, the new covenant will be finally ratified and established, and Christ will rule on earth. But there is this intervening delay, this, this time period called the church age that we are in today. Well, so they're 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 wondering what's going on. Why are the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit? Hey, Peter and John, you guys go and make sure that Philip hasn't gone off his rocker. You know he's doing what is right, and to to really recognize that this is taking place. Acts eight fifteen. When they arrived, they were believers. They prayed for them they might receive the Holy Spirit, because though they were saved, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. And so Peter and John prayed for them. And then verse 17, then they received the Holy Spirit. R.A. Tory says, look, right there. D.L. Right. Moody, D. Martin Lloyd Jones, John Piper, right there, look. They're believers, apostles come, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. It is a latter work of God. Second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Same thing happened. And I, let's not I don't have to turn to Acts 19. Uh, These disciples of John and Apollos goes with Paul and they ask him, ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And these men are like, 12 of them. We never even heard of the Holy Spirit. We were baptized with the baptism of John. And so, apparently, they believe they're Christians. They receive the gospel and then later on, the Holy Spirit lands on them. They say, look, there again, here is the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. It proves it, they say. Now, what are the purposes of this second baptism? The Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is for the purpose of assurance of salvation. And you ever know Christians, some Christians, like, how do you know you're saved? And they say, oh, I just got it. right? Oh, it just, I just, I know I'm saved. How do you know? Because, you know, I just experienced the Holy Spirit came or you know, I just got baptized or pumped up or I felt electricity. Now I'm sure I'm a Christian. I have assurance. Assurance is something that just happens to you. Well watch what Martin Lloyd Jones says. The greatest need of the present time is for Christians Christian people who are assured of their salvation, which is given in a special way to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit, they have a sense of the power and presence of God that they have never known before. And this is the greatest possible form of assurance. When Jesus baptizes a person with the Holy Spirit, a person is carried not only from doubt to belief, but to certainty, to awareness of the presence and the glory of God. Another purpose of this baptism is... For the purpose of ministry. It empowers you for evangelism. It empowers you for missions. R.A. Torah, now if a man is regenerate, he is saved. If he should die, he would go to heaven. But though he is saved, he is not yet fitted for God's service unless he is baptized by the Holy Spirit. The reason you're not effective in ministry is because you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. John Piper, the essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who is already a believer receives extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. And so, church history, especially modern-day church history, is replete with such testimonies, where D.L. Moody was ministering and proclaiming the gospel. Two ladies came up to him and said, we're going to pray for you. And he said, oh, I don't need prayer, I'm okay. No, you need to, uh, you know he baptized with the Holy Spirit again. They prayed for him, and he was. From that point on, his ministry skyrocketed just like with the Martin Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham, right here in Forest, Forest Home, up in the mountains, he had that Holy Spirit experience where he was preaching the gospel, there was not much fruit, but when he was, when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, it was like, you know, 92 octane, right? You know, dual lube in the system, and he was able to proclaim the gospel, and many got saved for the purpose of ministry. Well, then the question remains, if we believe this, how do we receive the second baptism with the Holy Spirit. How do we receive it? And you know what, guys? You read ten books on how to receive it, they'll tell you ten different ways. There is no uniform like teaching on how to receive the Holy Spirit. Because why? Because it's not in the Scriptures. And so, our Torrey will give you seven steps to receive the Holy Spirit. Accept Jesus as Savior. Second step is renounce all sin. Hey, if you can renounce all sin, I think you already receive the Holy Spirit. You can stop right there in step two open confession before the world, complete obedience. Like I said, if you have complete obedience, I think you already have the Holy Spirit in full abundance. First, you must hunger for God. Just ask Him and then have faith. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you can't do anything about the Holy Spirit. Because that's the Holy Spirit. It's not us. All we can do is wait and ask. And maybe God will give you the second baptism. Well there are problems here. You know, you know, many, many problems. You go to a car mechanic and they say, oh, many problems with your car. Well, likewise, many, many problems with this position. Just a couple of them. First of all, it creates two categories of Christians. Two categories of Christians. There are, you know, those full gospel churches. What are they insinuating? That they have the full gospel and we just have the gospel, right? They have, you know, 92 octaves. We have 87 octaves, right? They have the complete work of God. We have the partial. So in the church, there are, like, there are the, you know, the seals, the special forces Christians. And then there is, you know, I don't want to point anybody out, but, you know, regular Christians. That's what they're saying. Two categories. And it's not really your fault because that's what God has made you to be. Right, and, and so in terms of relationship with God, in terms of walk with God, well, that's not, that's not consistent with the Bible. The Bible says there are wheat and tares, sheep and goats. You're either for me or against me. You're either in the church or outside the church. For some, you know, it's, it's, for some it's an intentional uh, affirmation of non-lordship salvation. For some, it's an unintentional affirmation, of non-lordship. What they're saying essentially is, there are Christians who are just like weak and compromised, apathetic, they're not serving, they're not evangelizing, but they're Christians. Don't worry, don't bother them, they're saved. Don't rebuke them, don't confront them, don't challenge them, because they're Christians. The fault is God just didn't give them the Holy Spirit, just pray for them. There's those Christians, and then there are other Christians in the church, who are disciples, who are spirit-filled, spirit-baptized. And that's non-Lordship salvation. Intentional or unintentional, that is the result, and that is a major problem. Secondly, it is inconsistent with the teaching of faith alone. Uh, We need to turn here. Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Apostle Paul says, I will like, and he is... um, you know, he's on a, on the attack, on the offense. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law? Did the Holy Spirit come upon you because you, you did something? Or did the Holy Spirit come because you believed what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? It is all by faith. It is by faith we're saved. It is by faith we're sanctified. It is all by faith. To say that we are saved by faith, but to receive the Holy Spirit, you need to ask. You need to first. You need to obey. You need to confess. You need to do certain things. It is adding works to the equation of sanctification? Let me read to you Ephesians 1:13. It Says. Having believed, past tense, having believed, past tense, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Not only that, there is no evidence in the scriptures that some believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit and some believers weren't. In Acts 2, it is clear all the believers are baptized. In fact, throughout the scriptures, there is never, there is not a single command from any of the writers, a command to be baptized. Of the Holy Spirit. There's never. And you know, Paul is running to Corinth. Paul is running to churches in Galatia. What about Laodicea, right? They're lukewarm. They're not hot or cold. They're worthless. So what, is, what does John say? Does he say, guys, start confessing, start obeying, and get baptized in the Holy Spirit so that you might put, put away these carnality, carnal what works? Do they say that? No. They never once command anyone to be baptized again by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they have already received the Holy Spirit. A believer is a possessor of the Holy Spirit. John 14, I go and give you the Holy Spirit and He will dwell in you forever. And that leads us to the second view. The second view that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at salvation to all Christians. baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at salvation to all believers. The Holy Spirit is doing two things. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. And then He unites us to the church. That's that's Spirit baptism. The two works. Unites us to Christ unites us to the church. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Here Paul talks about spirit baptism and how that identifies us in unity with Christ. Romans 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? The first principle is that all true Christians have been baptized into Christ Jesus. When Paul says, do you not know, he is saying, are you ignorant of the meaning of your baptism? That when you are baptized by water that symbolizes spirit baptism, and spirit baptism is being immersed with Christ, coming into a vital union with Christ. At the point of salvation, that everything that Christ has has become yours because you're inside of Christ. Verse 4 and 5, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So, as we are baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death, so that we have died with Him, and because we have died with Him, we have been raised with Him in the newness of life. That's spirit baptism. The second work of spirit baptism is incorporating us into the universal church. And for that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, The verse that was read to us, that we read together, First Corinthians twelve thirteen, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. One spirit. Therefore it is not possible to be a Christian and not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is not possible to have two baptisms because there's only one spirit and one baptism. All believers, when they, are, when they are born again, receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized. He goes on. They are baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. They were all made. Another metaphor, to drink from of the one Spirit. And here, Paul could not have said it more clearly. One Spirit baptism has established the unity of the church. There are no partial Christians. There are no partial members of Christ's body. No halfway houses for His children. No children are half adopted. Each child of Christ have been inextricably united to the church through spirit baptism. That's the basis of our unity. That's the basis of our unity. Oneness in Christ. If it's true that there is a second baptism, that means some believers here are not part of the church, that some of you, if you have not been baptized, you're not united with us, and I'm not united with you. but that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that every Christian has been united by the Holy Spirit into one body. Well, the purpose has been stated: How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Galatians 3, 2 and 3 again. Believe in Christ. Repent. Acknowledge your sins. Trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. At that instant, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you might say, Well, Pastor James, I did that, and I didn't feel anything. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't get slain. I didn't get no one there was no one behind me, but still, I mean I didn't fall over. I didn't feel any electricity. Nothing happened. Well, let me say something, and I might bother some of you. Every time I've said this, it's bothered people, so I crossed it out here. But you know, (laughs) you know, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. I don't feel God. How does God feel like? How does Holy Spirit feel like? Many times I don't feel saved. I don't feel like a Christian. I don't feel the love of God. Sometimes I have a lousy day. I don't feel God's love. Right? I feel God's judgment. I don't know spiritual reality by feeling. And that's mysticism. That's pagan religion that's coming to the church. What separates Christianity from all other religions is that ours is a relationship based on faith in the Word of God, the objective truth of God's Word. We know what we know because the Bible tells us and we believe it apart from our feelings. Well, that's what David said. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Do I make my bed in Sheol? Do I make my bed in the depths near hell? You are there. Now, when you're in the depths, when you're in sin, do you feel the Holy Spirit? No. But David says, even though when I'm mired in sin, mired in temptation, you are there. How does he know that? He doesn't feel it, but he knows it through the Word of God, through doctrine. So yes, you become a believer and you might not have felt anything. I mean, what we feel is, we feel the knowledge of God's love, right? We feel that. And we're worshiping Him, when we're praying, and we know Christ is near. We believe Christ is true. We believe He loves us and cares for us. And because of that knowledge, we feel it. But we don't directly feel the Holy Spirit, directly feel God. So, how do you receive it? You receive it by faith, not by experience, not by feeling, because the Bible promises it. Instantly, you become a Christian, positionally, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, period. Well, if that bothered you, talk to me afterwards. (laughs) Oh, problems. Well, what about, Pastor James getting late, what about these problems of Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19? What about these problems? Well, gosh, give me some time, guys. I want to finish today and start fresh next week. So, you need to understand Acts, this book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. We all love the book of Acts. But, it causes so much confusion, so much heartache. I mean, just like Boston Church of Christ, L.A. Church of Christ, what's their problem? What is their problem? Why are they like that? They misunderstand acts. Like, these Pentecostals, Charismatics, what's wrong with them? Why are they doing, why, why are they acting, behaving that way? They misunderstand acts. Second baptism of the Holy Spirit, what's going on? The Witness Lee Church, you guys see them, right? Every city should have one church. Why? Where did they get that from? The book of Acts. Acts causes so much trouble. As a pastor, man, I, you know, it caused me so much difficulty. Because I love the book. It's great. It causes me heartache. Why? Because people wrongly approach Acts and they forget its history. Right? When, when people study the Torah, study Exodus, they have no problem, that's history. When, they, when people study, like, Gospels, they understand, oh, that's history, that's past, right? We don't go look for Jesus in, you know, Israel, right? Where's Jesus? You don't do that. You know, it's past. But when they come to Acts, they forget. It's a narrative. It's a historical rep- recording of the first century church. And with, you know, sincere hearts, with right motivations, wanting to honor the Lord, they say that's normative for today. Acts should be happening. We should be... A, New Testament Church, we should be an Acts two church, but it's like, brothers and sisters, you can't, because Paul is gone, Peter is gone, John's gone, right? The Samaritans are already in the church, right? The Gentiles are already in, right? It already happened. I mean, all all these things have happened. It's a history of what happened. So we need to discern carefully what is described and what is prescribed. Description versus prescription. In Acts, there are many descriptions that are unique events. Once for all. Like, we don't, like Pentecost was once for all. At the same time, intertwined within those descriptions are prescriptions given to the church. So we need to rightly divide the Word of God in the book of Acts. But when believers fail to do that, it causes such problems. Well, how are we to approach Acts then? We need to approach it as history. We need to approach it as a transitional book. As a transitional book. There there are many transitions taking place in the book of Acts. What transitions, you ask? Glad you asked. Six transitions taking place, right? Christ was on earth in Acts 1. He transitions, He moves to heaven, right? There's a transition from law to grace. There's a transition from Israel... And then they speak in tongues of nations. God always spoke in Hebrew, but starting with Acts 2, God spoke in various languages. Transition. There was a transition in race from Jews to Gentiles, non-Jews. Transition from the physical kingdom of Israel to the church, this, this church age. And then finally, the transition from the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, transition into... The partial fulfillment of the new covenant. So, as this transition was taking place, the apostles had a question. I mean, this was a controversial question in the New Testament church. Look, we understood how you got into the old covenant. You know, the old covenant God made with Israel, that's a great singular plan, that's a great Verizon plan. How can I get in that plan? How can I get those minutes? How can I... Pay only $10 for 300 minutes. How can I get in? In the Old Covenant, there are, th- there are two ways. One way, you need to be born into the Jewish nation. So if you're born a Jew, you're in. right? It's like, you know, grandfather clause. Or, you need to become a Jew. You need to, if you're a Samaritan, Gentile, you need to get circumcised. You need to go ritual cleansing. You need to obey all the laws of the Old Co- t- Testament. So you need to become a Jew to... Participate in the old covenant, but because you are not ethnically a Jew, you are forever a second class citizen, right? In the temple, there was a court of Gentiles and the court of Jews. So if you are a non-ethnic Jew, you can't go into the inner court. You have to stay in the outer court because you are not born into the Jewish nation. That's old covenant. They understood that. Here's this new covenant, and their question was, how do we enter into this new covenant? How do we get into this new contract? Well, if you're a Jew, through spirit baptism, by becoming Christians. Or then the question with Samaritans, Acts 8. Do they have to become Jews first? Be circumcised? Don't eat pork? Don't eat lobster? Right? Obey all the commandments? Right? And then they become Christians. Gentiles, Acts 10. Likewise, do they have to become Jews first? And that's why when Philip preached the gospel to Samaritans and they believed, the Holy Spirit Waited so that there will be apostolic affirmation that Peter and John would come as representatives of Christ, sent ones by Christ, and would affirm, it is indeed the Holy Spirit receives them directly into, into the church. They don't have to go through hoops. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to be circumcised. They can just become Christians because look, they receive the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit receives them, who are we? Peter said, right? In Acts 10. To deny them right hand of fellowship, into the church. And that's what was happening. This transitional nature. Once when the first group of Samaritans came to the church, that intervening time period of waiting never occurred again. Because it, it was for apostolic affirmation. When Cornelius and his family became Christians, we spoke holy, so that intervening time, it was once for all, it never happened, it was a unique event. Likewise, in Acts 19, when Old Testament saints, followers of Yahweh, through, the post, through John the Baptist, there was that waiting period that was once for all, never to be repeated. That's what the book of Acts was describing to us, recording for us. It's history for us to see, oh, that's how we got into the church. It is not so, it's not prescriptive. It is not to be repeated in the church today. I have that chart for you. Hopefully it will be helpful as you review, well, conclude our thoughts, give you three conclusions to kind of wrap our time together. My first question was this. How do we explain godly, God-fearing men, Bible-believing, Reformed theologians, how can we explain their error in understanding the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It doesn't make sense. Idea like Martin Lloyd Jones. This guy is right on everything, more right than I am. And how can he get this so wrong? This is my personal opinion, and this is where I dread the tape recorder. Right? I wish they could turn it off right now and just speak to you. And if you repeat it, I could disavow it. I wouldn't do that, but you know what I'm saying. It's my it's my personal guess. Um, compromising, complacent, selfish. Disobedient Christians drive pastors crazy, even to the point of wrong doctrine. All right, even to the point of wrong doctrine. The Martin Lloyd Jones came to a church while he was vacationing. They knew who he was. They asked him to preach. They were kind of, they were kind of hesitant. Like you're on vacation, we don't want to ask you to preach. You're on vacation. That's why I said, "Go ahead, ask him. Preaching is his life." Martin Lloyd Jones loved the church, loved to preach, loved the Word of God, giving it to the saints. And this is what he said about the church. So the Christian Church today is failing and failing miserably. It is not enough to be orthodox. You must of course be orthodox otherwise you don't you don 't have a message, but we need authority, we need authentication. We are confronted by materialism, worldliness, indifference, hardness, and callousness in the church. That is why we are urgently in need of some manifestation, some demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. His biographer Ian Murray tells us that the audience in Westminster Chapel, Chapel was an anonymous group of believers who were strangers to one another and they rarely rarely greeted one another in the church. They were just anonymous strangers, gathered together to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones. They would not talk to one another. They would not run the race of faith t- together. Right? So, When pastors are faced with dead and dying churches and dying Christians, it drives pastors up the wall and it tempts them to adjust their theology to fit the reality of their ministries. Right? Because they say here, the Bible says Christians obey Christ. Here are these Christians. How come they're not obeying Christ? How come they're not following the Lord? How come they say they love Christ? but they're compromising, living in sin. It doesn't make sense. And you preach, you preach, you love, you pray, you give, and nothing happens. So pastors are tempted, well, oh, maybe, it's because, they didn't receive the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can't tell them they're not Christians. So yeah, they are Christians, but what they need, is a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think that, this is the driving motivation, this is my personal opinion, my guess, driving motivation of many false teachings, like being slain in the Spirit, prosperity gospel, right? speaking in tongues, secret sensitive movement. There are these professing Christians, and they're dead. Nothing's happening. So, they're tempted, and they often do, they adjust their theology to fit the real- reality of the church, because there is an inconsistency, a disconnect, that exists between the two. Right. You know, you can go to a church and you can tell a lot about the pastor by looking at the church, right? If you look at the church and they're struggling, you can say, that oh, maybe the pastor is not good. Well, the opposite is true, too. If you go to a church and you find that the pastor is struggling, frustrated, I mean, he's just discouraged, it tells you a lot about the church, it tells you a lot about the professing believers in that church. Well, same thing. It tells you how important each Christian is in influencing others for the gospel. That you can directly encourage one another and directly encourage the pastors and leaders by your Christian life. If you're obeying Christ, if you're doing what the Bible says, Christians obey Christ. At the point of salvation, Holy Spirit dwells in them, they've been baptized. From that moment on, they're changed. Then you encourage the leaders, encourage the shepherds, the pastors, to teach the word. Be faithful to the Word of God, but if you disobey, if you're compromised, apathetic, complacent, then you discourage. you unbuckle the heart of the shepherds and heart of the pastors and causes them right, much distress, the point of you know, driving them off the wall, you know, white hair, and then the last is like wrong doctrine. That's my guess. It's the importance of each Christian, the important, the power that you have. To encourage shepherds and also discourage them. Second concluding thought is Romans six. Spirit baptism is the basis for practical holiness. Spirit baptism is the basis for practical holiness. Let's turn to Romans six. Three through five is how we've been baptized into Christ and into His death. Therefore, we are dead to Christ. You know, our flesh feels alive. It feels very healthy. But the spiritual reality is that our flesh is dead. We are dead. So Paul says, verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Because we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are free. You and I have been set free from the cruel master called sin. We are dead to sin. He has no power over us. Therefore, because we have the Holy Spirit, Paul says, put to death our sins, lay aside our temptations, and obey Christ. Submit our bodies as instruments of righteousness instead of sin. 1 Corinthians 12.13 Final concluding thought, final application. Spiritual baptism of all believers is the basis for two things. First of all, for unity. First of all, for unity. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 24, part A. But God has so, 25a, that there may be no division in the body. One spirit and one spirit baptism. And He baptized us into one body for this purpose, that there will be no division, that the church will love one another and acknowledge the unity that God has created in the church. You might not feel that unity. That that believer doesn't treat me well. That guy, he's not friendly. Or that gal, she's kind of judgmental or whatever. You might not feel it but we don't live by feeling. We live by the Word of God. The Word of God says, even with all our differences, positionally, we are one in Christ. We are united. Therefore, do not allow Satan to create a wedge of division in the church. Do not separate what God has joined together. That's the first uh, application from Spirit baptism, 1 Corinthians 12. Second is verse 25b, that the members... May have the same care for one another. That the members may have the same care for one another. And that's what's different in the church. When the world comes in, what they must see is indiscriminate love and care for believers. See, in the world, you know, if you're a superstar in your sports team, you get all the attention. You get special, the best trainers to care for you. You get special, you know, attention, right? In the business world, you guys experienced this. The executives, managers, they get the nice office and more, you know, best equipment and more attention. The low-run guys, you know, eat in the corner, right? What separates the church apart is we're not utilitarian. We don't have that kind of uh, love or concern for one another. We are concerned for everyone equally. We love everyone indiscriminately without. Without difference right? Without priority. Why? Because we've all been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We have different roles: you know, eye, ear, nose, foot, leg, you know arm. different roles. but positionally, we're all equal So because of one baptism, we're to treat one another and care for one another equally. Hope that when you go through the rapids, you know the white water of your life, ministry you'll remember this teaching of spirit baptism and be an encouragement to you as it is to me. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. Praise you for the grace. Lord, we were able to navigate through these complex teachings not because we're good Christians, not because we're wiser than anyone else, not because we're morally good or we deserve it. It's all by grace. We're undeserving of these truths. The reason we have them is because of your goodness and mercy. Help us to be humble. Help us to be meek and lowly and gentle. And instead of being held high in our own eyes and look at others who are wrong, help us to see ourselves and focus our first and foremost attention on where we are wrong and how we are to walk and live and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, knowing that You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. to Live according to it. We have no excuses. We don't have to wait any longer. There is no second work. You've done it all on the cross. And when we believed in You, and when You saved us, You've given us everything we need. Help us, Lord, to stop waiting, stop searching. Help us, Lord, to stop, start living the Christian life. So that we might be an encouragement to one another. And to be an encouragement to our shepherds, to our leaders, to our, our pastors. To, to be, faithful, to the to the word, In Jesus name we pray, Amen.